we do not live in a peaceful world. We live in a world which is full of hostility. Nations make war against nations or express hostility in other ways. Within any one country, there are vast areas of hostility. There's political hostility. There's social hostility. There's hostility against the government. And uh, there is hostility to the rules and laws that are, are enacted for our good. There is idealistic hostility, disagreement. There is family hostility. There is domestic hostility. And uh, if you don't believe me, just read the newspaper or watch a television news broadcast and you'll find it's full of information about the hostility that people have one for another. Uh, there, there are tremendous problems. Uh, there seems to be no peace in our society. No rest in the hearts and minds of people. There are fears, there are worries. There are people who are desperate to find escape from this world and they can't. They can't say stop the world, I want to get off. They may want to do that but they can't do it. So they seek at respite in all kinds of activities that makes them or helps them forget the hostilities around them but those hostilities are still there and that's why the subject of peace is very important for us there are even hostilities within the church within professing Christians within Christendom and there are even hostilities that arise within a given local church and these things ought not to be for the Christian. And that is why we're going to look at this subject of peace. And I'm going to uh, look at it under three headings. First of all, peace with God. Secondly, peace in God, in Christ. And thirdly, the peace of God or peace from God. Those little words that we call prepositions are important, aren't they? Peace with God, peace in God, and peace from God. Three different facets of what the Bible means by the word peace. So let's begin with the First of those, peace with God. At Romans chapter 5 that we read begins, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is referring to a forensic peace, a legal peace, a sort of peace you get when two nations sign a peace treaty. Peace with God, talking about our relationship to God. 
And that, of course, is good news for the believer. We have been justified by faith, and as a consequence, we have peace with God. But behind the good news, there is bad news. And that bad news, of course, is that for those who have not been justified by faith, there is no peace with God. And uh, as you read on in, in chapter 5, we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't read on, but uh, we've, we see that in verse 6, uh, this is part of what we did read, we see that before becoming Christians, the Ephesians and Paul himself, he includes himself, were weak while we were still weak. We were ungodly at the end of verse 6. We were sinners, verse 8. And verse 10, we were enemies. Weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. That was our state says Paul, before we were justified by faith. Uh, you might say, well, that sounds very hard. Are you saying that, or is Paul saying, that everybody is an enemy of God until they become a Christian? And the answer is, yes, that is exactly what he is saying. He says it even more clearly even more starkly in the early verses, first ten verses of, of Ephesians chapter 2. We started our reading at verse 11. But before that, he has made this statement in the first three verses of that chapter. He says, addressing the Ephesians as Christians, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, that is, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom you had your life, among whom you, you lived, fulfilling the desires, the evil desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were, and this is the key thing, you were by nature children under wrath, under God's wrath, children of wrath, just like everybody else. You see, this isn't just true of the Romans. It's true of everybody. We are born into this world sinners under the wrath of God because we are the descendants of Adam who rebelled against God and who led, as our federal head, as it were, led into enmity against God. 
well, what about all, all these nice people I know who are not Christians? What about the, the good parents and the faithful children? What about the, the good neighbors who help me out on that occasion and that occasion? What about all the pleasant people I, I meet as I go about my daily life? Surely you can't say that they are under the wrath of Almighty God? Well, I don't say it. The Bible says it. And I think there is perhaps a, a clue as to the reason that that is so. <clears throat> in a statement by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 64 and verse 6, he says, we, and he's talking about the nation, talking about the Jewish nation, but these words apply to everybody, as we have seen from the New Testament passages. We are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We fade like a light leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have carried us away. True of the Jewish nation, the nation that was supposed to be specially called uh, by God and, and considered themselves God's people, we're all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And you see, the point is this, that the reason we don't think this can possibly be true of all those nice people we know and of ourselves before we became Christians is because we do not comprehend fully the holiness of God. And you see, as Iris is saying, look, you do do righteous things. We do perform righteous acts. We have righteousnesses in the plural. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But in God's sight, in the sight of a holy God, those righteousnesses, those good things we do, those kind acts, those pleasant words, even those sacrificial acts on behalf of other people, they're like filthy rags. Because, because the motivation behind them is wrong. They're good acts, but we don't do them for the right reasons. And the only motivation that satisfies our Creator, the one who made us in his own image, the only motivation is the glory of God. We do not do things to the glory of God then our motives are wrong and our actions are polluted, if you like. I, I, I visited the United States some, uh, for the first time some 60 years ago, I think now it was, and a gentleman there and his brother had built a high-rise apartment block. He was a builder, developer, and he said, well, come and let me show you this development block. He took me up to the very top 
And from there I could survey the whole city of Cleveland. And my friend pointed out the river that runs through the city. And he said, what color is it? And I looked. I said, it's black. It's black. And he said, yes, it's black because of all the pollution that is poured into that river by industrial organizations and establishments and activities uh, down the, the banks of the river. And he said, do you know, some time ago, the river caught fire and it burned for three weeks before it could be put out. The river caught fire. Now, when water catches fire, you know there's a problem. And that, to me, illustrates what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we walk according to the course of this world. The course of this world is like that river flowing through time. But it's a polluted river. And it is a river that testifies to the corruption of human nature. But of course there's good news. There's good news. I mean the essential point of uh, Romans 5 is the good news that since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God. We're not enemies of God anymore. Uh, we're not offensive to God anymore. We're not under his wrath, his anger anymore. And, and I want to drive that home, perhaps, in a way that we shall remember, by taking Isaiah's picture of our righteousness being like filthy rags a little further and turning to the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, the last but one book of the Old Testament, <coughs> and uh, a passage which I always find very moving and uh, it might be new to some of you. Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, and, and he's having visions and, and an angel takes him uh, around and shows him things. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire, burning stick plucked from the fire? Now, now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now, this is a courtroom scene. We've got the angel of the Lord, and of course that is a title for Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, that means Christ, the angel of the Lord is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. He showed me Joshua, nothing to do with the book of Joshua, this is Joshua the high priest, and the high priest, of course, was representative of the whole people of Israel. In one sense, the high priest of the day was the leader of the nation of Israel. And the high priest was always clothed in beautiful garments in, in the flesh. He had lovely clothes with jewels and, and colors and so on woven into this clothes, silver bells around the hem of his long flowing garment. Uh, Joshua, the high priest, should have been a beautiful person. In the eyes of men, he was a beautiful person. In the eyes of men, he had beautiful clothes. But here we see behind the scenes. Joshua, representative of the people of Israel, was clothed in filthy garments. You see, that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. That when God looks upon us, when God looked upon that nation, and it applies to us today, when God looks upon us, he doesn't see the outward finery or the outward acts that we call good. He sees that we are polluted in our souls. How is that going to be dealt with? Well, one thing that the Bible makes absolutely clear is you can't work it off by good works because all your righteousnesses are like filthy rights. The very good works that some people think are going to please God and let them escape from his anger, those very good works are filthy rags. So that's not going to work, is it? But what do we see here in, in this, this, this court scene in Zechariah? We see the judge, the angel of the Lord, Christ. We see Satan opposing Joshua. He's the prosecuting counsel, if you like. And Joshua is the prisoner in the dock. <clears throat> and his guilt is obvious because he's dressed in filthy rags. A wonderful depiction of the reality of our state before God. And Satan is in the process of accusing Joshua, reading out the indictment, pointing out, look, his... His, his robes are filthy. That is indicative of his corruption and sinfulness. And the judge interrupts and he says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, chosen Joshua the high priest, chosen the religious rituals, chosen the, the city uh, that, that epitomized the whole nation. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is not this Joshua? Is not this man representing a nation like a stick plucked from a burning fire, a brand plucked out of the fire before it is totally consumed? And you see what he's saying is, look, uh, okay, I know he's guilty. I know you've got a whole list of things against him, but I have chosen him. And I have plucked him from the fire of destruction. As if you were pulling a burning stick out of a fire. And then, what does the judge say? The judge says, remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And, and that to me is, is a very beautiful picture of the way God in Christ has taken away the sins of his chosen people. He's taken away the sins of those who were enemies. He has removed the filthy garments. He has made us clean. And, and, and why does he do it? Romans 5, chapter 1. He justifies us by faith. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God declares us justified. And that's what justification means. It means a declaration of righteousness. But how can God do that? We are sinners. We are enemies of God. We are guilty. We are under his wrath. How can God just, as a stroke as it were, take all that away and clothe us with the garments of salvation, which is the righteousness of Christ? Well, he can do it because Christ took our place upon the cross. Upon the cross, Christ took our sins upon himself that we might have his righteousness bestowed upon us. The great exchange, if you like. And Paul sums this up in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made him Christ. It starts a little bit earlier. Uh, God was in Christ. And when Christ died, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Great exchange. Christ bore our sins, that we, believing that, there's the faith, when we believe that, We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So God sees us as righteous as Christ is. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And faith, let's be clear, is not a work. 
It's not something we have the capacity to exercise by human nature. Faith itself is a gift of God. By grace, you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Do you have peace with God? Have you been declared righteous, justified through your faith in Christ? I know that many of you here have. There may be some watching this video that are not in that happy situation. You are still an enemy of God. You may be religious. You may go to church. You may read your Bible. You may say your prayers. But you have not been justified by faith in the death of Christ as the remedy for your sins in the Son of God who bore your sins in his own body on the cross. So you're not justified. And therefore you are still an enemy of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, let's move on. The other points that remain aren't going to take as long as that. Once we have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ, once we have peace with God so that we are no longer enemies at war with God but we have been justified and we have become God's children not his enemies once that has happened something very wonderful occurs let's turn now to our Ephesians passage chapter 2 and from verse 11 he's talking to these Gentiles and he says remember that that once you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus, through believing in Christ Jesus and his atoning death, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, in Paul's day, there was no greater division and conflict than that between Jew and Gentile. They hated each other. They despised each other. They had no dealings with each other. And yet Paul here is saying, that's all changed. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things are passed away. Behold, everything is new. It's 2 Corinthians 5. Something has changed in the individuals that has removed the enmity between the Jew and the Gentile. And at the end of chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul is able to say this, 
there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, bond, slave, nor free, male, nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Now, he doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't men and women. It doesn't mean that there were not at that time um, slaves and, and free men, free people. Uh, what he means is that the enmity, the division, the wall of separation between uh, different kinds of people have been taken down, that all those who are believers in Jesus Christ have become united, they've become one in Christ. Now you say, well, how does that apply to today? Well, it applies very, very strongly. I don't know whether you've come across the expression critical race theory. Anyone heard of that? Yes, some of you have. Well, critical race theory was a new philosophy introduced in, in the 1970s, which said your real identity is with the group to which you belong. That, that you, you should and you must and you don't have any alternative to identifying yourself as a member of this group or that group. It comes out particularly, of course, in the, the, the uh, color issue in, in, in uh, United States and elsewhere in the world. Either you're a black person or you're a white person. And those are two different groups. And you can't help it. That's automatic, you belong to that group. And each group will have conflict with the other group. And that goes not just to skin color, goes to other forms of ethnicity, of nationality, of culture, you, you belong to a group. You, you're not really defined as an individual, but you're a member of a group. That defines your character, your nature, your reason for being. And this uh, was at first a, a philosophy. It didn't really affect people. But it has become, become common in the thinking of people. They belong to a group. They are underprivileged. Or they're, or, or they're not underprivileged. There are privileged and underprivileged people, two groups. They're in conflict with each other. Um, it, it almost goes back to the old uh, Marxist dialectic, um, the whole principle behind communism, uh, <clears throat> that there are opposite principles in society that are at war with each other. And that is affecting thinking, affecting our thinking, affecting government legislation even. And it's something that we've got to resist in the church because <clears throat> whatever the intention of critical race theory, sometimes just called critical theory, whatever the intention behind it is, its practical effect is to divide people. I don't belong to your group. You don't belong to my group. 
therefore there is a division between us and, and, and conflict between us. The Bible says, no, in Christ we are all one. We are not separated, we are united. Like the spokes of a, a bicycle wheel. They're far apart at the rim of the wheel, but as they get closer to the hub, they get closer together. The hub is Christ. We are the spokes. Uh, we must, if we are real Christians, we must come together. There is peace. Peace between different kinds of people. Peace between different, different races, different uh, ideologies even. Peace between different cultures. We are one in Christ. And one of the things I, I, I greatly regret uh, seems to be unavoidable, but um, even in this country, and certainly in, in the United States, uh, there are black churches and white churches. But the Bible says, no, no, there is no distinction. There is no racial distinction. There is no cultural distinction. Whatever our background, our culture, our nationality, the color of our skin, and so on and so forth, we are one in Christ. We have peace in Christ. Let us make sure that we exercise the biblical concept and not the fashionable social context in our manner of life, in the way we behave, in the way we think about other people. One in Christ. If we are all believers in Christ, then we are at peace with one another through the blood of Christ. Finally, Philippians. We've looked at peace with God. We've looked at peace in God, this unity that we have in Christ. And now we look finally at the peace of God. And that brings us to this familiar passage in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, you notice there's a link, first of all. In verse 2, there's a link with the last point. Because uh, Paul has heard that two uh, women women who have been fellow workers in the gospel with him, women who have done good work for the Lord, have in some way, which we're not told, they have in some way fallen out, become estranged. And so he, he writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, true companion, writing to the pastor of the church, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. There, right in the midst of a, a, what I might call Paul's favorite church, the church of Philippi, there were conflicts. And, and so that has to be put right and is a reflection of the last point. But then he goes on to say this. Rejoice in the Lord, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
let your reasonableness, perhaps that's also going back to the potential of conflicts within the church, be reasonable. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And some have taken that as meaning a reference to the return of Christ, but I don't think it means that at all. It simply means the Lord is close by. Your disagreements are being watched by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your wrong attitudes to other believers, if they exist, are seen by Christ and they grieve him. So be reasonable. Be reasonable. And then in verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I just want you to notice that there are conditions. We're going to have this, this, this peace which surpasses understanding a peace which is is not logical in our circumstances in circumstances where we should not be having or enjoying peace we have the peace of God it surpasses all understanding it will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus but there are conditions first of all there's the condition to be reasonable. We have to consider our attitudes and actions and words and thoughts about others. We have to remember that Christ is near, something perhaps we don't often remember, that the Lord is, is observing all that we do, all that we think, all that we say. We then have to be trusting. We have to trust Christ. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious. If we're anxious, and I'm sure every one of us knows what it is to be anxious, uh, if you're anxious, then you're not trusting in Christ, are you? Am I, if I'm anxious? So that's a condition. Trust him. Thank him in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And then we've got to ask him. Well, those are the conditions we've got to fulfill if we're going to know this peace. But this peace is beyond our comprehension. And it is ministered to us. We come back to Romans 5 as we finish. It is ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. There, in verse 5, isn't it? Romans 5, we're told that hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God is spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
And although that doesn't mention peace, when Paul lists the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, uh, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. You can see the reflection, can't you, there? The love of God is shed abroad, spread out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And he brings not only love, but he brings joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, says Paul. And he brings peace. It is the peace of God in our hearts. It's not a peace we've worked up, not a peace we've somehow arrived at by thinking the problems through. It's a peace that comes from above, from the Holy Spirit. So then, what do we know? What do you know? What do I know about peace? Do we have peace with God? Have our sins been forgiven? Have we exercised faith in the work of Jesus Christ to take away our sins? Are we practicing the peace that God has established between different people, different cultures, different characters? Are we practicing that? in the church and thirdly are we fulfilling the requirements to have the peace of God in our hearts they're not difficult to fulfill you've only got to be reasonable you've only got to recognize that Christ is near you've only got to trust him and you've got to thank him then you will know that peace that passes comprehension